Hi, friend. You are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, a podcast created especially for someone who's not sure about relationship with Jesus Christ. My name is Janelle Wood, and while I have a background in counseling and ministry with women, the truth is I've been through my own seasons of questioning my faith. So if you've ever struggled with not being sure where you belong, or you felt like you were faking faith, or maybe a friend just shared this episode with you and you are feeling a little wounded or skeptical of all things God-related right now, welcome. This podcast is just for you. Finding Something Real is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. My passion is Jesus Christ, and for me now, After having been through some real ups and downs on my own faith journey, I believe Christ is the hope and the answer to this world more than ever. But don't take my word for it. Listen to my friends as they share their own grace-filled journeys with you. My prayer is that if you haven't already, you'll find something real too. How do you question your faith without losing it? And how do you deal with those feelings of pressure, confinement, when you've grown up with religious rules or expectations, and now you're in an environment where it's all kind of confusing. Those are some of the questions we're going to be tackling today. Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast. This is your host, Janelle Wood. And friends, you are listening in for season five, where we have been starting off each month with a different young woman sharing her faith story, and allowing her the space to ask some tough questions about God and Christianity. And so this month, our first episode introduced Elizabeth. Liz and I had a great discussion about her personal experience growing up, going to church, how some of her beliefs have changed since starting college, and how now she's exploring what faith and relationship with God means to her. Liz shared some great questions about faith and culturally relevant topics. And so if you haven't already, I highly recommend you go and check out that first episode with Liz and hear more of her story, as well as last week's episode with special guest Sheila Gregoire. We'll put a link in the show notes. You can find those at findingsomethingreal.com, along with other things like free resources, an occasional blog post, how you can get more involved with this program by supporting us through Patreon or advertising, and ways to connect. All of that can be found over there at findingsomethingreal.com. And real quick, friend, I have a special ask of you today before we jump into our conversation here. If you love this podcast, will you please leave a review on Apple Podcasts for me? It helps build trust for listeners. And also, if you are a regular listener of this podcast, you may have noticed that we have had some amazing guests on here, people that often I don't know, who agree to spend their time and resources investing in conversations with me and young women who have real questions about faith. And as we reach out to more special guests to connect with the monthly co-hosts here, sometimes Understandably, people want to know what impact this podcast is having. One of the ways you can observe some of that is by checking out reviews, which maybe you do this too, but it's something I do all the time when I buy anything on Amazon or any other place if I can. So it's something that people will sometimes do before agreeing to use their time and resources here. And I believe this is an important work. And if you do too, or you've just like listening and you haven't left a review already, Will you tell someone by sharing a review? 
thank you so much for that in advance. Liz couldn't be here for today's recording. She's on her way to a concert, she said, but I will definitely share this episode with her later because I'm super excited for the guest we have here today. Dr. A.J. Swoboda is a pastor, professor, and writer. For nearly 10 years, he served as a college pastor on the campus of the University of Oregon. Then for another decade, planted and pastored a missional church in urban Portland, Oregon. Currently, he is the Associate Professor of Bible, Theology, and World Christianity at Bushnell University. As well, he leads the Doctor of Ministry program around the Holy Spirit and leadership at Fuller Seminary, and is taught at Multnomah University, School, uh, London School of Theology, Life Pacific, and Southeastern University. He is the author of 10 books, including the book I've been diving into this week, After Doubt. As well, he is the co-host of the In Faith and Doubt podcast with New Testament scholar Dr. Nijay Gupta that reaches thousands each week. He loves Jesus deeply, has been married to Quinn for 18 years, and is the proud father of one son, Elliot. They live and work on an urban farm in Eugene, Oregon. Welcome to the Finding Something Real podcast. Dr. AJ Fuboda. <laughs> AJ Gupta? That would work. Yeah. I'd take it. It was all in yeah. there. AJ Gupta. Is it I okay if it. I just call you AJ? You can call me AJ. And uh, Janelle, thank you for uh, inviting me to have a conversation with you and for all the work that you're doing. Thank you for uh, serving people as you do. Oh, well, I'm, I'm so glad that you're here. Um, I had watched a video of you at Bridgetown Church sharing about. Um, what we're going to be talking about here today. And I'm, I'm just looking forward to this conversation. So uh, thank you so much. What has your summer looked like? I know you're a very busy person. I just listed off all of that and it's a long list. Um, how has yeah. your summer been yeah. treating you? Complex. Uh, this uh, summer represented a lot of uh, important personal and professional milestones uh, on a personal level. Uh, our foster daughter uh, transitioned out of our home just two months ago. And so that represented a, a very large um, shift in the way our family structure uh, was embodied. And then on a professional level, it's been a really fun summer. I uh, had the opportunity to go uh, spend about a, a 10 day period in uh, Sweden where hmm. uh, after doubt, this book about doubt and deconstruction had been translated into Swedish. And wow. so I spent about 10 days there uh, lecturing and teaching at a couple of conferences and then um, uh, working on a new book that I'm working on right now on the topic of spiritual formation and desire. How does God form our, our wants, uh, our desires? And so really fun stuff, but it's also, you know, um, there has been some downtime and some opportunity to rest and be with our family and, um, but it has been a, a comp in, you know, when you drink a good cup of coffee, you can sometimes tell there's a lot of notes in this coffee. There have been a lot of notes this summer, a lot wow. of notes. Life, yeah. Well, that's a lot to uh, process and unpack. <laughs> we yeah. um, said goodbye to our exchange daughter uh, from Germany just a couple wow. of months ago, and we're still grieving the loss of that and uh, welcoming somebody new here shortly. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I'm, yeah, that, that's hard. And then, yeah. uh, we're welcoming to this area a gal from Sweden, and I have an exchange daughter who lives in Sweden. I I may need to know how to get a copy of your book in ah. that language. <laughs> wow, yeah, uh, it's called. It's like translated Tivlet, uh, 
Oh, I can't even say it, but it, you, you can find, look up after doubt Swedish and I'm sure it'll pop up. But awesome. Yeah. So it sounds like you've gone through some transitions as well. Yeah. Uh, summers for academics are a funny time because we, um, we tend not to be in the office, but that's when we're expected to do other things like write and do course preps and whatnot. So it's a little deceptive, but it was a really good summer. I'm really excited for the fall. That's awesome. Well, um, Nora, if you're listening or Olga, um, there you have it. Um, and also, uh, AJ, I have to ask you this question because I listened to some of your podcasts. It's excellent, by the way. And uh, for anyone listening, go check out his podcast. Um, But my question is, what makes an academic? Because I heard you talking about that. And I'm thinking, how do people know when when they've become an academic? I know that I'm not, but I'm just wondering for anyone listening, this is how you know when you've arrived. Well, Janelle, that's a really fascinating question because when a student is writing a paper, and they're reading their syllabus and it will say in the syllabus, you must include seven to nine academic sources. That raises the question, well, what defines academic? And you know, there's ways to dance around that question. It's gotta be from an academic journal or a trained uh, expertise in their field or so on and so forth. But I don't really like that because uh, it sort of assumes that the way you know if you know something is you've got some letters behind your name. Mm. And the truth of the matter is, Janelle, the people who I know that walk in the most wisdom often don't have letters behind their name. So I'm an academic, which essentially means I work at an academic higher ed institution and I, um, I'm trained in a very niche field of systematic theology and can talk about Pentecostal eco-pneumatology probably <laughs> better than anybody else in the world. But that does not necessitate in any way, shape, or form a life of wisdom, character, or virtue. Mm. Uh, I can tell you as somebody who works in academic higher ed, there is no connection between character, virtue, and having a PhD. Wow. Uh, so all that to say, uh, it's just basically a way of saying I teach. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> I'll avoid uh, all that stuff because it's way over my head. But uh, would you share a little bit of your own faith journey and your background that way? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, you know, uh, there's a lot to say, but I think some of the big parts of the story would be that I, um, kind of, I have a kind of unique story because I was not raised in the church, uh, was not raised in a particularly faith uh, faithy family. My mom was a nominal Catholic. Uh, my dad is actually a, a, a Buddhist. They're, they're no longer married. They, they went through a very painful divorce when I was about 10 years old. Mm. Uh, but I was not raised in a faithy home. It was not a, it was not an environment where I uh, have many recollections of um, God or Jesus or church really being a big part of our family structure. Although I do have sort of a weird uh, almost a weird background memory that there was a God and I just didn't know anything about God. I just knew there was a God, but I didn't know anything about God. And through the ages after my parents divorced, uh, at about 10 through the ages of about 13 to 16, went through a pretty difficult existential crisis, uh, that you and I would call adolescence. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that uh, experience really was challenging given uh, some of the things that uh, I had been dealt uh, as a lot in life. Um, 
And be it uh, parental challenges to a sexual crisis when I was a teenager, to not knowing who I was, not having very many friends, being an only child. Um, and I was 16 years old and I was in my math class in high school and I overheard the two girls behind me arguing about when Jesus was coming back. They'd been reading the Left Behind series. <laughs> and I went home and read my Bible for the first time and uh, really had a pretty powerful set of experiences with the Holy spirit and reading the Bible. Mm. And I don't say that to say that everybody has that experience because that's the truth is a lot of people don't have that experience, but I can tell you without any hesitation that whatever it was that happened to me when I was 16 years old uh, was real tangible and changed the entire trajectory of my life. And if that's the Easter bunny, then uh, <laughs> I love to say, cause uh, the Easter bunny doesn't have that kind of impact on people's lives. Yeah. Uh, so it was a very real palpable life-changing experience and have been following Jesus since I was 16 years old. Wow. That's amazing. What, what book of the Bible did you start with? It turns out uh, I didn't know what to read. Uh, my dad had given me his Bible from his childhood. He was, uh, didn't need it. And so he gave me his Bible and I sat down and read, sort of did this uh, rando read the Bible God, if you're real, speak to me sort of thing. And I opened the Bible up and I read the entire book of Leviticus. Oh, gosh. For those of you listening who are not familiar with the Bible, that's probably one of the more dry books. Not the book that Billy Graham would traditionally (laughs) preach out of in his crusades. Um, you You don't ever really meet somebody doing Bible track ministry, handing out little things of the book of Leviticus. (laughs) Um, so I kind of closed my Bible and I said, God, I'm going to give you one more chance. And I read, uh, by God's grace, I turned to one of the gospels. I had no idea what to read. And I read, um, the earlier part of the gospels where Jesus calls Matthew, the tax collector and something about that story just is imprinted on my soul. I, I, it was almost like I heard Jesus say to me, come follow me. Mm. Um, yeah. And, and that, that really set in motion, um, a bunch of dominoes in, in my life. Wow. Have you watched the chosen, uh, series where they have seen? Yeah. Janelle, I'm really, my wife has a very interesting philosophy on that show. Um, we have a son, I've watched a couple episodes of it. It's remarkable. I mean, it's just simply breathtaking, but we have decided that we are not going to allow our son to watch it. Mm. Um, and the reason we're not going to allow him to read it or watch it is it's the sort of you know, do you let your kids watch the Lord of the Rings before they read it? Or do they have to read it before they get to watch it? Yeah. I think the chosen is almost so well done. I don't want his imagination to be robbed. So we, we actually have not watched it as a family, but talk about, man, do I wish Christians made more cinema like that? Yeah. I mean, just so creative and well done well there's that scene there's a scene if you haven't watched it where jesus calls matthew the tax collector and it's just aj he comes out of the tax booth and it's everything's don't ruin it for me i know go go watch it i'll send it to you later i'll send you the link it's so good it's so good you need to watch it um did you ever tell the girls who are arguing about left behind No. no i have no idea who they were there were these these mennonite girls in my class that um, I have no clue who they were. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that funny? It's, it's almost like accidental evangelism. Um, I, I often <laughs> tell people like talk about Jesus all the time. Cause you literally have no idea who's listening. That's like right. there's, you have no clue. There's probably somebody eavesdropping right now and you have no idea. I hope so when you're so. in a coffee shop and you're talking to your Christian friend, like don't, 
don't be stupid because you make Jesus look really bad when you are, because people are listening. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, amen. So how did you get interested in the topic of spiritual doubt and deconstruction? Yeah, the, the origin story of my interest in this topic really does go back to my earliest years as a Christian. I was 19, 18 years old at the University of Oregon, just two years after my first encounter with Jesus. And <clears throat> I was reading my Bible and uh, kind of for my daily uh, daily office thing. We didn't call it back then. We called it devotions back then, but um, <laughs> sure, we call it the daily office. Uh, and I was reading the gospel of John and I came across uh, a part in the gospel of John chapter five, where there is uh, a verse missing. And anybody that has a Bible can go find it for themselves. It's John five, four. And most Bible translations don't have John five, four. It goes straight from three to five. Hmm. And I had never, uh, I didn't know what to do with it. And I called, so back then this was pre-internet. I, <laughs> I did, so there, you, you may remember the Bible answer man. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, a radio show. It wasn't the Bible answer man, but there was a radio show of a guy that used to take uh, questions on air and you could call in with your Bible question and he would answer your question on the air. And I called in and I said, so I'm a brand new Christian and I'm reading the gospel of John and I don't know what to do with this fact that I have a Bible that's got a missing verse. I paid for the whole Bible. Why didn't, why what's wrong with my verse missing? And I could hear him on the other side of the thing, wrestling through his Bible, trying to look it up. And he found it. And he says on air, he says, you know, this is a great question. I'm glad you've asked it. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll make a little tape for you and I'll send it to you. Mm. And he sent me a tape about two weeks later, I got a tape in the mail and on the tape, he essentially said, again, this wasn't the Bible answer man, but it was somebody who had a similar ministry. And he said, um, you've asked a great question. And he said, but don't worry about it. Just keep following Jesus. Don't let those questions bother you. And that experience uh, really triggered something deep in me. Mm. Uh, and the, and what it triggered, it, it actually set off in motion a whole series of kind of existential problems. And I started wondering, have I been tricked? Mm. Have I been lied to? Have yeah. I been deceived? And I started doing that thing where you're like, you know, what else, you know, aren't mm-hmm. they, aren't they telling me? And it, it just so turned out at this near that same time, somebody gave me a copy of N.T. Wright's book, The Last Word, which is a book about how the Bible was put together and theology of the Bible. And, and, it, and I learned basically, I, 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 I learned what happened to John 5, 4, and it actually has nothing. It's nothing at all what most people would think. It turns out that obviously the verse separations are not original to the text. And uh, those, you know, the Bible verse, the actual numbers were put in, you know, in the 1950s, 1940s, 60s, and there was just a a number put in in the wrong place. And there was a verse that was basically not included in the earliest manuscripts. But but essentially, at the end of the day, um, that experience of having somebody say, don't ask questions, made me really want to ask more questions. Right. And we uh, in in the church uh, have this almost allergic reaction to the tough questions. And we tell people just have faiths sort of sweeping under the rug. And I just am unconvinced that that is an approach towards serving people and that people that are walking through doubt and deconstruction are not served well by being told to sweep their questions under the rug. And what they desperately need is often they don't even need an answer. More often than not, they just need somebody to walk them, walk with them. Mm -hmm. 
And N.T. Wright, who wasn't with me, I read his book, walked with me. And a couple of years ago, I got to introduce him at a conference and publicly thank him for essentially saving my faith, um, for showing me a way through this. And, you know, God created us to have mothers and fathers in the faith who walk alongside us. Wow. Wow. What an amazing story. That's what I want to do is, is, is help walk with people through their doubts. Have you Uh, been on Justin Barley's podcast with NT Wright yet? Oh, he's, there's no, no, I'm not (laughs) cool. No, 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 no. (laughs) Yes, you are. The the NT Wright podcast he does is just mind blowing. Uh, The number of times I've been on a walk listening to Wright weep as I'm jogging is ridiculous. So uh, yeah, I, I just think his work is profound, but that is such an amazing story. And such an encouragement to so many people yeah. that might be listening. Um, tell me a little bit about your book, After Doubt, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing yeah. It. Yeah, well, this um, particular project, uh, as a result of the fact that, you know, a lot of the ideas in this book really started percolating when I was about 19. This book took me about, you know, 22 years to write. So I, I don't, I, I definitely wrote more. I spent more time writing this book than any other book I've ever written. And this is my 10th uh, produced volume of work. Um, and it really is at the end of the day, it is a, it is intended to do for others what NT Wright did for me, except I'm not NT Wright. (laughs) So it is an attempt at giving a voice of, um, parental spiritual love for people that desperately need, um, a friend in the foxhole. Because it's really lonely to walk through these experiences. And we don't, the church um, in general in the West, specifically those of us that come from the more conservative, dare say, orthodox kind of conservative traditions, um, we uh, do a really fantastic job shaming people who are asking questions. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we ever do it overtly, but I think that we treat people who walk through dis- deconstruction and doubt as though, ah, they're just doing it because they're smoking weed or something like that. <laughs> and there, by the way, that does happen. I'm not saying that, that doesn't happen. But people that are asking big questions don't need to be shamed into asking questions without the community. And we do not, Jesus said, leaving the 99 for the one is is the is the way of Jesus. And I just don't see Jesus going to the one and, and shaming him further away from the 99. Mm. So this is a book. Yeah, it's a book about the, the one who's wandered and how God is with them as they wander. Mm. And there is no, if the, the, really the thesis of the book is if, if Jesus can save us from our sin, then he can save us in our doubt. Yeah. Wow, I love that. Uh, you and I have very similar passions. Uh, <laughs> and if we had time, I would share stories with you about, uh, man, how God has convicted me of exactly the same thing. Um, by the way, side note real quick, I meant to say, John Mark Comer said it was the best book you've ever written. So mm-hmm. I read that in the introduction, uh, which mm-hmm. is a high praise because I mm-hmm. love John Mark Comer's uh, books as well. Um, but we're here uh, in part because Liz had some great questions. Um, she's in college trying to figure out her faith for herself been hanging out with new friends, uh, very involved with her sorority, and she's questioning some traditionally, uh, quote-unquote, taboo things, uh, new piercings, new tattoos, new relationships, some crystals and tarot cards, and also feeling a little frustrated with some of the rules that she observed growing up um, in her faith 
uh, walk. Her story is one I'm sure you've seen played out a few times in your work in college ministry. And I'm just wondering, AJ, how do you meet that young person sitting in the proverbial uh, back pew? Mm. <clears throat> um, yeah, it, in conversations like this, I, I have to say on the front end uh, that I find it a bit um, unhealthy for me to cast pastoral wisdom to somebody that I've never met and I don't know. And if, if Liz and I had done the hard work of developing an in-person embodied relationship where I knew her story and she trusted me, I would probably talk very differently than the way I'm going to talk now. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is my, I think that this is my way of saying uh, I, in general, don't believe that you can pastor from a distance. Mm -hmm. You have to be in someone's life. And so I'm being asked to pastor from a distance here. Um, it is very natural uh, for uh, children and kids and teenagers and young adults who have been raised in the church uh, to experience something that psychologists call reactance. And reactance is basically the idea that we, when we are given a rule, we love to break it. <laughs> uh, we have been given some ideal or some concept. We are created by God to be curious beings. And we see this very early on in the book of Genesis, when God gives the man and the woman some profound freedom. The very first words out of God's mouth to the man is he says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is not a rule-based God. This is a God that gives profound freedom. And there is only one tree that they were not to eat from. And the fact that Adam and Eve, the man and the woman were given such profound freedom and were asked to not eat from one tree and yet ate from one tree, I think speaks something to the human tendency towards over curiosity. Mm. And that is that we, um, there's something in us that loves to even test uh, the boundaries that God has given to us. So if I would say to Liz, we need to go through each one of those things that she mentioned, um, piercings, tattoos. I mentioned them. I mentioned them. This is based on a conversation and a, yeah. a very deep relationship, her and I. Yeah. yeah. Well, I just. <laughs> that I, she freely I, shares. <laughs> Thank you, Liz, for your vulnerability. Uh, I, I find it striking that in the human story, the first person to come up with a, a rule that is not life-giving is humanity. Mm. Uh, the woman uh, quotes to the serpent something God never said. She says, God said we can't touch the tree of knowledge, good and evil. And God had never said that. Mm. God never said you can't touch. Uh, this is why Frederick Dale Brunner in his book on the book of uh, in his commentary on Matthew, says that uh, Eve is the first Pharisee in the Bible. Mm. She has created a tradition that God never created. Oh. God never said you can't touch. And I'm going to bet that some of the traditions and rules that Liz has in her brain are not things that God ever told her to do. Mm -hmm. And we would need to do, we need to get into the footnotes and we need to look at the fine print. But I think for a lot of people that are raised in conservative churches, Often we give people pharisaical traditions over what the Bible has to say. And I think that if Liz gave the Bible a hearing and heard how absolutely liberating it is, she would probably find that um, 
that the rules she was given don't always reflect what scripture has to say. Mm. So I, th- this would be an opportunity for me to become Liz's friend and sit down and talk. And um, I think had Adam and Eve built a tree house in the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God would have been fine with it. Mm. He never said, don't touch it. But we said, don't touch it. Mm. So I think that's my response is I'd need to get into the weeds with her and find out, you know, the whole tattoo thing is a big, you know, like, like Christians that are raised in churches and the whole tattoo thing, like, ah, tattoos are evil. And you go to Leviticus and you read it. And, you know, this, this section on, on, on tattoos um, has nothing to do with tattoos. It's about, it's about idol worship. And at the end of the day, uh, when we make it about tattoos, we are misreading what the heart of the text is. It's actually about uh, not worshiping idols. And so it turns out, I think actually we can use things like tattoos as a way to glorify God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and be liberated from the rule-based uh, human-created traditions um, and find God's creativity is right there uh, beckoning us. Yeah, yeah. I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you, how do you respond to a parent, because uh, I know you've been a pastor, um, who is like, hey, this isn't how I raised my kid, and yeah. I'm disappointed in the choices that they're making right now. <laughs> yes. Well, this is why Jesus told you the parable of the prodigal son, um, because that that, pro, that that parable, yeah, it's about a kid who runs away. Um, actually, it's a beautiful parable about how to parent. When you read the parable of the prodigal son, which a lot of people have pointed this out, it's not really, A, it's not the prodigal son, it's the prodigal sons. You have two sons. And by the way, the older son who never runs away from the home is as much prodigal as the one who did. And it is possible to, to be lost and still be at home. So it's about the prodigal sons. But more than anything, it's the parable of the seeking father. It's the father that seeks the child. And when you read that parable carefully and you look at how God parents, because God is the father in the picture, um, it's brilliant parenting. Uh, When the son runs away, read the parable. When the son runs away, the father um, lets him run away. Mm -hmm. And he does not coerce him. He does not shame him. He gives him the inheritance and younger sons don't get the inheritance. Uh, he blesses him. He, he, he literally blesses him in his rebellion. And parent, listen, my son is 10, he's 11, turned 11 yesterday. Hmm. There are going to come, there's going to come a time when my son will rebel. Uh, everybody does because we're humans and sinners. Mm-hmm. And the question will become, am I going to, internalize the message that I'm a horrible father or am I going to bless my son? And I think that parents that learn to bless their kids, even in their rebellion, I'm not talking about enabling horrible, evil behavior. I'm talking about blessing children who need to go on their journey. I think that parents that bless their kids when they walk away become really blessed when the kids come back because they know that it's a house of blessing. Mm. Um, so, uh, anticipate that your kids aren't going to be who you want them to be and realize that you have a God who knows that feeling. Hmm. And if God experiences that, then you'll probably experience it a little bit too. (laughs) It's, it's, it's a little, it's a little odd to me that we would, we would think that we're better parents than our father in heaven. Um, If the father gets abandoned and rebelled against, and he's the good God of the universe, we can anticipate experiencing a little bit of that here and now. 
And, you know, when my son goes through that experience, I will weep. It will be hard. It will be challenging. But at the same time, it will be God's great reminder to me as a dad that my son's creator is more enamored and in love with my son than I am. And the minute my son starts coming home, man, I'm out in the front yard dropping my lawnmower and making dinner for him. Hmm. Getting the trigger going in the back. <laughs> wow. It's just pork and yeah. Hmm. AJ, you say in your book that questioning and challenging one's faith has become popular. In fact, I quote, uh, you say, deconstruction is cool now. Honor is now given to those who entirely leave their faith. This summer, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I was at a small apologetics conference, and Elisa Childers was one of the speakers. Elisa, yes. uh, for those of you listening and don't know, has done a lot of work around deconstruction and progressive Christianity. She wrote a powerful book called Another Gospel, and I'd love to have her as a future guest. Um, but, you know, it was interesting listening to her because she didn't have a lot of positive things to say about deconstruction as a movement. Um, And yet I watched a video of you sharing about deconstruction a few months ago. Um, You were at Bridgetown Church in Portland. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share some points that you consider when thinking of spiritual deconstruction. Yep. Well, Elisa, Elisa's book is brilliant and she is brilliant. And nothing I'm about to say is a critique of her work. Mm -hmm. And what she's doing is very important. And, um, it, although I will say to you, Janelle, you are one of about a thousand people who have said to me of all the books on deconstruction that are really rooted in scripture and are orthodox in theology. You're the only one who's actually attempting to articulate some positive version of deconstruction mm. there, meaning there's not a lot of books in, in our tradition that, that do that. Mm-hmm. And the reason I do that is um, the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> do tell. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if, okay, so what is deconstruction? We have to define it. What is deconstruction? At the end of the day, what is deconstruction? Deconstruction is undoing a belief. That's what it is. It is, de- it is so constructing a belief is building a belief. Deconstructing is undoing a belief. And in the Bible, we have a word for changing somebody's mind. Um, if I'm going to intentionally change my mind and think something other differently, we have a word for that in the new Testament and it's the Greek word metanoia. And it means literally repentance Hmm. to change your mind. The idea of changing your mind is a deeply biblical Jesus centered. The first sermon out of Jesus's mouth is about repent, come to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Metanoia was a core message of Jesus's life. He called us to leave behind lies and to follow the truth of the universe. Who is Jesus? Deconstruction is not the problem. The problem is what are we deconstructing? Hmm. To deconstruct a lie is called holiness. (laughs) (laughs) To deconstruct the truth is called apostasy. Mm -hmm. But to leave behind, listen, I've been a teacher long enough to know this. When you have kids that come into your classroom who were raised in a cult and they were given absolutely asinine non-biblical ideas about who Jesus is. My job as an instructor in that class is to help deconstruct their lies. Mm -hmm. That is called liberating somebody because false ideas oppress and it is Jesus who liberates. Mm -hmm. Only the truth can set us free. Sometimes when you believe in truth, you have to undo lies. 
And so when we talk about deconstruction, it is not whether we're deconstructing, it is what are we deconstructing and why are we doing it? If we are deconstructing lies that we believe based on what scripture has to say and what the church has taught for 2000 years, that is, that's called repenting. That's coming home. Unfortunately, there are times where people deconstruct, not because they want to follow Jesus, but because at the end of the day, they do want to sleep with somebody they want to sleep with. They want to smoke what they want to smoke. That is not good deconstruction. That's very dangerous. But are you going to tell me that Martin Luther was not deconstructing when he stood at the door in Wittenberg and nailed 35 theses on the wall and said, uh, I'm standing here and I have nowhere else I can go. I got to say what's true. When Jesus says, you have heard it said, but now I say to you, was that not deconstruction? He was deconstructing false interpretations of the law. So again, I would say there's a form of deconstruction that actually leads to truth so long as we are deconstructing lies and, 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 and moving towards Jesus. That's great. What do you make of this idea of let's just throw the whole faith away? Because I, I think most people, when they think of deconstruction, that's what they, that's what they imagine. They think, oh, it's just taking my faith and destroying it and walking away because yeah. I can't figure any of it out anyway. Well, if, if you spend your life on TikTok, I can understand why you would get right. that. Something. <laughs> uh, but when you're an educator like I am and you spend time with students who were raised with such non-biblical understandings of Jesus, deconstruction is, is simply walking people out of the Egypt of their thinking. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean... Yes, there, there is, there is 100% an impulse of some people who are saying, let's just chuck the whole thing. But that is such a, that is a small portion of the people that I work with. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I can think one particular student comes to mind who came to my, uh, came to my office hours one time. And she was describing to me, I mean, she, she was just, she had been raised in a family where there was profound traumatic abuse. And she was explaining to me the theology of her church that essentially said, uh, as a woman, your way of submitting to God is by being abused and being okay with that. Mm. I'm, I'm telling you, Janelle, at that moment in history, that young woman was in desperate need of some deconstruction. Yeah. yeah. And what she needed was a trusted guide to help her see what scripture actually has to say. And in that moment, that, I mean, that's a scary moment because you could easily, I could imagine her being in some office of a professor at the University of Oregon across the street of somebody who says, yeah, that's all Christianity. Just chuck the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But that's not Christianity. And that's not Jesus. And this young woman needed to trust a guide to see what scripture has to say rather than what this asinine denomination taught mm -hmm. about essentially uh, a framework for abuse. Yeah. So if you want to, if you want to say that kind of deconstruction is evil, I'll meet you behind the shed and we'll have a conversation. <laughs> that, that is not the way of Jesus. Yeah. That is not the way of Jesus. Yeah. That is not. That is not the Jesus who, who meets women caught in adultery and freaking blesses them and forgives them. That, that is not the Jesus who stands up for women in Luke's gospel. That's not the Jesus we know. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. You write in your book, and this is a quote from page 190, you say, God is seen by those who seek him. That's mm. how we begin the journey of reconstruction, of mm. honestly seeking Jesus right where we are as we are. Yeah. Um, what are some practical things to consider when you are considering, okay, uh, everything around me is messy. Um, how do I start seeking Jesus in a real tangible way? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, my first comment, uh, just in, in reference to the, uh, to you quoting me to me, and that is about how, uh, God seeks to be sought or something like that. There's a, uh, one of my favorite thinkers right now who I've just been binge watched, binge listening to and reading is a psychologist, a neuroscientist by the name of Kurt Thompson, uh, who writes about a neuroscience and Christian faith. Uh, he's written a book called The Soul of Shame, The Soul of Desire. Uh, he's a neuroscientist who writes uh, on, on Christian faith. And he, in his book, The Soul of Desire, talks about how when we are born, you look at a baby who's born, and when a baby is born, he says, there's this line in the book where he's, it's just, it's majestic. He says, we are born when a baby comes out, the baby begins to look for someone who is looking for them. Mm. That a baby is created to come out of the womb to look for the person who's looking for them. Hmm. We were made by God to be looked for. We were made by God to look for God because God is the one who's looking for us. There's an attachment. You could almost take attachment theory. And put it, <laughs> you could. Like that we were made to gaze into the face of God and we were made to be seen by God. And when you can't look God in the face, something in the human soul is, is deeply, deeply lost. So how do you, how do you seek Jesus when you don't want to <laughs> how do you seek Jesus when, uh, when it's really, really, really hard to, I would commend Liz and anyone listening to this to maybe two practices that I have found really life-giving the first, uh, habit or a discipline for those who want to seek Jesus, but don't want Jesus, <laughs> they want to hurt or desire Jesus or something like that, is to reappropriate a very robust understanding of the biblical idea of confession. Uh, confession in the Bible, for many of us who have any liminal sort of imagination around, you know, the Catholic tradition, we think about confession as sitting in a booth with somebody who we talk about our sin with, and then they give us homework to do or something afterwards. Um, the biblical notion of confession, homologeo, uh, the, the Greek word homologeo, it literally means to say with one voice. It is to, agree, essentially, it means to agree with God. That's what it means. It means to agree with God, to say with one voice. So confession, uh, my friend Jamie Winship defines it this way. I love this definition. Confession is simply telling God what is true. And that is to say to God something that God already knows. Um, there has never been a moment in anyone's confession where they have told God something he was not previously aware of. And when we confess to God, right, we're not instructing God. There has never been a moment in human history when God has listened to prayers and been more informed. Um, confession is telling God what he already knows. And I'll tell you as a dad, I know when my son has done something wrong. 
I see it on his face. I've counted the cookies in the jar. <laughs> I, I know I'm not a fool. I know when he's done it. And the most important thing to me as a dad is not that my son is perfect. The most important thing is that he knows I am a dad who can handle his brokenness. Mm. And when he tells me that he has done it, I celebrate his confession and I love him and I forgive him. The problem is when he doesn't tell me. And when we are not wanting Jesus and we don't feel like following Jesus, step number one is telling Jesus we don't want him. (laughs) And not saying it as though we're blaming Jesus and not saying that we're done with him actually saying, Jesus, I don't really want to love you right now, but I want to love you. Will you help me? Mm -hmm. It's that whole, uh, I, Lord, uh, I believe, help me in my disbelief, help me in my unbelief. Um, There's no sinner's prayer in the Bible, but there is a doubter's prayer in the Bible. And the doubter's prayer in the Bible is I believe, Lord, help me in my unbelief. And that is in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. That that is in the New Testament is God's invitation to doing it now. Jesus, I'm going to follow you, but I'm not feeling like following you. Do you, I think I would invite your listeners to just capture how much that makes the hair on the back of God's neck stand up, how much he loves that Mm -hmm. of a child who actually says what's true. Yeah. Um, The second thing is this, uh, human beings are way more social than we want to be. Uh, we are created. I remember back when I first became a Christian, <laughs> some, uh, I don't remember who it was. It was some acquire the fire conference I went to or something. <laughs> yeah. Acquire the fire. <laughs> yeah. You will become your friends. And I remember like when I was in grad school being like, oh, that's garbage. Yeah. You, Jesus hung out with all the wrong people and all that sort of stuff. And whatever, I've got thoughts on, on the idea, but the truth of the matter is we are wildly social pe- pe- beings and we really do reflect the people around us. Um, and it's impossible to not reflect the people around us on some level. And so when you spend your entire adult Christian life listening to every podcast about everything that's wrong with the Bible, guess what you stop believing in? <laughs> when you spend your time listening to podcasts about how the church is homophobic, racist, closed-minded, bigoted, horrible, evil, systemically wrong. Uh, guess what you stop wanting to be a part of Mm -hmm. Um, when you spend all of your time surrounded by people that think being a Christian means you're worshiping the Easter bunny. Guess what? You stop worshiping. You stop worshiping Jesus and you, you start thinking that your faith is a joke. And I'm not saying that we need to abandon our friends and the world. I'm not saying any of that, but I'm saying to live in this world without properly understanding that we were made to live in community is to live in total isolation And it is in isolation where we are most grounded in untruth. We need a community around us who can help us believe even when we don't know how to. Mm. Um, And so I would say, find a church that really believes in the Bible and really holds forth Jesus as the only way to God and throw your heart and your soul into it and, and love the people that you don't like. This is a weird experience for me right now. I go to church and there's a lot of people at church. I just don't like, (laughs) and I think that Jesus 
did not create us to spend our life just loving people that we like Hmm. and that we need to love people that drive us mad. And I go to a church where I got a Trump guy on one side and I've got a Hillary guy on another. I've got an Antifa guy and a proud boy guy, and we're all going to church together. And I got to tell you, I, I hate it a lot. And right in the middle of it is Jesus. And man alive, if that doesn't ground you, I don't know what will. Well, great wisdom there. And we always wrap up with one final question. Uh, the Finding Something Real podcast, AJ, is about a journey towards restoration eternity, authenticity, and love of those four gifts that we can find in relationship with Jesus Christ. And of course, there are many others. Which stands out to you the most in your life right now and why? Mm. You know, this one, yeah, that's a really interesting uh, paradigm. Um, And I like it a lot. I might get it tattooed on my forearm. (laughs) I like it. Um, I was listening yesterday to a guy talk about a lecture and he said that he's quoting this theologian this old dodgy british theologian and he says jesus is the least sentimental and most loving person you'll ever meet Hmm. (laughs) and i tend to be pretty sentimental too sentimental i'm i'm all emotions and i'm learning that love really is not an emotional affair love is a giving of your life to somebody else for their well-being Mm. and i'm drawn right now to the love of christ um and my responsibility as a follower of jesus to love people the way that i've been loved so i'd say love love janelle Mm. love (laughs) that's wonderful dr aj swoboda thank you so much for being here today it's been a huge honor and blessing to have you i hope you come back again Mm. until next time Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting young women to join me as they share their personal stories and ask honest questions or share objections to the Christian faith. We hope to feature a different story each month and then invite Christian guests on to share from their own journeys and experiences and maybe answer some of those questions in follow-up episodes. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that. But if you're curious at all at whether there's something real to be found in Jesus, I invite you to come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with him. Until next time.